I would say you or your allies are running for office. What is it that you are running on that would appeal to voters? Find the interest groups that are interested in those issues and put them to work as your allies on the ground, as your spokespeople. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today, Don Green of Columbia University, is an interesting guy and another pioneer in the use of experiments to measure the efficacy of different political campaign tactics. Professor Green, along with Professor Alan Gerber at Yale, began the modern study of get out the vote efforts. Their book on that subject is now in its fifth edition, I think, and is a go-to source of information for serious campaign operatives. I much enjoyed hearing Don's story. You should definitely listen. So, after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Don Green. What do Blue State, Sierra Club, and Indivisible have in common? They all use Civic Shout to grow email lists that raise money like clockwork. And now, so can you. Instead of vaporizing money with Facebook ads or burning bridges with spam, a new wave of digital directors are helping Democrats and nonprofits acquire opt-ins and nail their monthly goals with Civic Shout. Environmental Action called Civic Shout a wildly better way to grow your email list. And Clarify Agency saw a 200% return on ad spend in just two months. Head to civicshout.com forward slash partners to learn more and schedule a demo. That's civicshout.com forward slash partners. Don, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. I'm Don Green. I teach political science at Columbia University, where I've been since 2011. For the 22 years before that, I was at Yale University, also teaching in political science. My interests have evolved over time. I'm sort of a multidisciplinary guy in that I published in political science, but also psychology and sociology and economics and criminology. So I'm interested in a wide array of different topics. I would say that the main things that have animated me recently have been the effects of media uh, on social attitudes. But I'm also very interested in voter mobilization, voter persuasion, campaign effects. But it's not hard to get me interested in more or less anything. And so I, I like to collaborate on on topics that are new to me because I like to learn new stuff. I noticed that you do some woodworking, which is something that I also do have a full shop behind my house. Where, where's your house? My house is in Washington, D.C., though I live in Vermont in the summer. I have what, what we like to call my garage mahal. <laughs> yeah. It was in the basement for so many years in the two houses that we had in New Haven. I swore that if I ever got out of you know that, that situation, I was going to build myself a shop. And so now I have a wonderful shop and I describe it as the happiest place on earth. It's a thousand square feet with ceilings that are higher than six foot two, which is where my ceiling was back in, in New Haven. It's just a delightful way to get in touch with physical things. Before I started woodworking, I did nothing with my hands. I didn't I didn't know things that were physical and and I came to really have a deep appreciation for, for the world around me working with the wood. There was a link to a photographer who had some bowls, I would say lathe work that you must have done. What other types of things do you build? I do furniture. Um, I've built a lot of stuff for family members. My heart is is really in, I like to make toys and games. I like to make turned objects. I like making cutting boards because I, my favorite material is scrap. I just like to find things that are, if they go wrong, there are no hard feelings. In some ways, that's why I like wood turning because there's usually no plan. Even when there is a plan, the plan doesn't last for long because you find a void or a crack or a something. And I'm friends with these really old guys who've been woodcutters for 50 years. And, you know, they'll drop off stuff at my shop door. And you probably have this experience too, where it's the serendipity that's the most fun. One of the things I did recently was I turned 
a old family crib into a bookshelf, just remaking <laughs> one object into another, which was yeah. kind of a fun project. Scrap. What was the wood? What was the made out of originally? Beach. That was a cherry crib. A yeah. cherry. Yeah. Okay. Okay. yeah. Yeah. Well, one nice thing actually about the house in the Hudson Valley is that the Hudson Valley is one of the most magnificent catchment areas for every American hardwood. And although we don't have Pennsylvania cherry, our cherry is kind of inferior. We we just have some magnificent things. And I'm like a guilty liberal woodworker. I, I only use the local stuff that my tree cutting buddies cut down and would throw away. Well, I'm lucky because my uncle had bought the second oldest sawmill in New Hampshire. Oh my goodness. It's quite small. Uh, one, you know, one machine sawmill. And so my source of wood has been what he dried over the years. And so I bring that a truck, a pickup truck back from Vermont to DC for the winter. That sounds fantastic. What is your favorite to, wood to work? I like ash, cherry, walnut, maple. Those are, those are all great. No, no oak? Uh, oak as well. Sure. I, but there's something, for some reason, I think it's like growing up with oak cabinets. Uh, <laughs> I may not be excited by oak, although sometimes elm, I have used, even though elm doesn't grow very big, I've used elm from our property at, for like corner posts on a couch I built. And yes, yes. Like uh, it's amazing for wood bending, steam bending. Yeah. Um, and actually, there's, a, there's a, a sawmill not very far from where I live, and the owner and I became friendly and he pointed out that i guess when the u.s park service um needed to replace it needed to find a, a way to replicate the liberty bell you couldn't hang a bell on anything other than elm because you needed a wood with so much kind of uh breaking strength that there just weren't very many options can't say i've tried that but uh pretty <laughs> it's so difficult to work yeah elm was really hard yeah let's say similar beach we have a lot of beach up there. So. Yeah, beach is gorgeous. It's one of my favorite trees. I planted maybe 100 trees in our property, and beach is absolutely my favorite. I'm currently pre-morning the ash that's going to die out on our property in Vermont. Yeah. I, I, I've just been making a ton of ash bowls, in part because we're now swimming in ash. Uh, the good news, I think, is although the boar beetle has wiped out our ash, we have so many ash saplings. I'm not sure how the ash knew to make all these saplings, but there must be 50 around our house. So there's hope. I understand you also make games. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's actually in some ways how I started doing the woodworking because when I first came to invent something and it was purely by accident, I had to make a prototype. And of course, I've never done anything with my hands. And so I had to hire somebody to do it. And he and I became friends and he was a retired machinist, a, a really outstanding woodworker. And so I thought, you know, his name is Ray Goudreau. Could I, could I hire you to teach me a bit? And we became friends and a hundred hours of instruction later, I learned to kind of muddle through. And of course, I've made 50 times every mistake that he warned me against making, but that was more than 25 years ago. That's how you learn. Really, the games are something that I, I've been fascinated with ever since I was a boy. My, my brothers and I were, you know, big gamers. And, you know, it was relatively late in life that I became interested in abstract strategy games, which of course was, was a rather poor moment in, in human history to get interested in them because the game companies of the world were just disintegrating. Nevertheless, it's been a lot of fun to uh, meet a totally different group of people. I've met a lot of chess masters and people who program at a very high level AI with chess and, and the games that I've invented, are I still play them all the time. And so that's it's been a lot of fun to, to learn about the world of games. I think when I spoke with David Nickerson recently, who introduced us, he had played games with you when he was a grad student. Yeah, and he's an extraordinary savant. In fact, his ability to look ahead is so much greater than the average person that I've been in, in situations where someone will make a move, David will chuckle before any of us understand what's funny. And it'll take a while for us to understand what's funny, but then eventually we will see that it was a blunder. And that sounds like a warning to me not to play him. <laughs> yes, uh, not for money. Yeah. Play him for fun. Well, that, that's a that's a cool hobby. I have a, a friend who does that in a different realm of gaming, and and it, it seems to occupy him very happily. So, tell me about where you grew up and and what sort of family. 
Let's see, I started off in the Chicago area long enough to become a long-suffering Bears fan. And then my father was in the in the Air Force. We spent some time in Nellis Air Force Base in Las Vegas, came back to Chicago, moved to Southern California when I was about 10. And I was a kind of California native, uh, went to public schools there and eventually went to UCLA as an undergraduate, which was only about... 30 minutes away from where I grew up in the San Gabriel Valley, and then went from being a Southern California snob to being a Northern California snob when I went from UCLA to Berkeley. And I thought, oh, well, I might take a job in the East, as it was known, which would have included you know, pretty much anything East of Nevada. Um, and I'll be right back, you know, like keep the, keep the car warm for me because we'll, we'll be right back. But that was, that was 35 years ago. Did you come to college with an interest in politics? My family was extremely engaged in thinking about politics and history. And my late father, who was a physician, he had basically a rule. It was kind of interesting in retrospect that no one would be excused from the dinner table. We would basically have a, a dinner together, you know, and it was going to be a rather kind of a formal affair where after dinner, he was going to light up a cigar and no one was going to get up until we had a discussion. And he would bring a discussion topic to the table. And one cigar later, the discussion would end. We'd go off and do our homework or whatever we were going to do. My father had strong views about politics and history, and they were not necessarily that deep. And my my other, one of my brothers, who's a philosophy professor, I think I learned as much from him as I did my father in the sense that his ability to counter-argue, it was remarkable. He was my younger brother. He was two years younger than I was, but he was, he was seemingly older. At any rate, it was, it was quite an interesting thing to have that repartee at the dinner table and my mother, of course, extremely intelligent and, and accomplished herself, too. So the five of us weighing in on the topics du jour made it so that when I got to college, it was basically a, a very light lift. It was not hard to jump immediately into being a double major in history and political science. I was always under the impression, guided by my parents' ex expectations, that I would go to law school, become a lawyer, that sort of thing. And it was only when I started taking classes in law as a political science major that I realized how little. I liked it. I remember the day I took the uh, LSAT and I became terribly ill during the, the actual exam. And I thought this was a sign from above that, you know, I should get out of this and, and do something else. In 1981, I, I was a, an intern on the House Committee, Committee on Energy and Commerce in Washington, D.C. And the guy who was in charge, a guy named Michael Kitzmiller, said, look, Green, you can do the kind of scut work that interns do, or you can just follow me around all summer long while we engage in politics. You can just observe and keep your mouth shut. And that's what I did. I, I chose the latter. That was the turning point. That's when I knew I wanted to go into the profession. It feels like a lot of people I've talked to who are professors of political science considered law very strongly. And like Lynn Vavrick, who I'm sure you are aware of, she has a kind of a dramatic story about you know, leaving law school after one day and and go and retreating to political science and not not looking back. Yeah, I didn't know, but but I never got to that point. By the time I was a junior, I'd come back from this internship experience, and from that point on, I was watching the professors in a very different way, asking myself, "What does it mean to be a professor? What do they do? How do they talk?" What does it mean to prepare a lecture? Looking at them from that vantage point gave me a totally different perspective on the profession. I still didn't really know what the profession is about because, as you may know, I mean, in political science, we almost keep it a secret from undergraduates. In contrast to, say, econ, where you know the econ professors teach economics to the, their students uh, in a way that is deeply unappealing to students because it's not really about the economy. It's about, you know, graphing and calculus. Abysmal science. That's right. And so, but, but in political science, we don't do that. It's, it's basically mostly about world affairs or current events. And so you wouldn't really know what the profession is as an undergraduate. So it was only when I got to Berkeley that I started to meet people who said, you know, actually that's not how it's done here. Yeah. I, I had similar experience in deciding to go to political science grad school without really knowing what political science was, thinking it was about politics and finding it was somewhat removed from that. <laughs> <laughs> what was the graduate experience like for you being a student there at that time? And why was that the right thing for you? 
it certainly was a, a shock to my system, in part because I was 22. I was fresh out of college. I was by far the youngest person in an entry class of 36. And the people I met immediately were grownups. And I was basically a kid. And I didn't know anything about anything. And so what was kind of interesting about it was to be in the same class as some very, very capable future scholars who went on to great things and to to realize for the first time that the profession was about making a research contribution. To the undergraduates, a professor is an instructor. And there's a lot of truth to that, but basically they're writers. And the idea that you would have to retool technically and every other way to learn a literature and to understand how to make a contribution to it, I mean, that was a shock to me. Yeah. What was your dissertation? My dissertation was about self-interest, the self-interest motive in public opinion, political behavior. And basically the argument was much to the surprise of people like me who went into the field of public opinion, expecting that people would sort of reason and calculate their way to policy views that would redound to their own personal benefit. Surprisingly, when you take a hard look at domain after domain of public opinion, uh, healthcare, unemployment benefits, race-related topics, you see a very weak relationship. And it really is quite striking because, especially at that time, rational choice theories of political behavior were ascendant. And so there was a kind of paradox. Why would this way of thinking about how people form their opinions prevail in spite of the lack of evidence uh, from public opinion polls? And so that alerted me to the disjunction potentially between elite and mass behavior so that elites could be strategic and masses not so much. And that was the thesis of the dissertation. I don't think the dissertation is very good by the standards I would now impose on it, but it did get me thinking about topics that later eventuated into publications. One of the, I think, perplexities of our time is the success that Donald Trump has in changing people's attitudes, changing who supported him, moving public opinion seemingly quite dramatically, moving partisanship perhaps in cases. How do you understand that kind of phenomenon? I would differ about the premise of your question, not because it's a foolish premise. Uh, in fact, it has led me to retrace my steps and, and ask, you know, to what extent did Donald Trump change public opinion or partisanship? And in the old days, I did a lot of work on partisanship and wrote a book on it. I went back to the same research methods, mainly the analysis of panel data where people are interviewed repeatedly over long periods of time to ask whether during the turbulent Trump you know, era, there was more shakeup of party attachments than had formerly been the case. And the answer is surprisingly no. We analyzed three long-term panel studies and found that partisanship was as stable, not perfectly stable, but stable, as it had been in earlier eras. You see the recent book by Patrick Ruffini, where he talks about where the movement has been. If you look at certain subsets of the electorate, you see a lot going on, right? It certainly is the case that he has changed who is active and who is sort of front and center. You know, for example, non-college educated white men play a, a role that they never played in the earlier era. There's no doubt that, you know, the act, the, the Trump activation of certain social groups is, is palpable. At the same time, what's so interesting, and I've assigned my students this year after year in my public opinion classes, you know, track public opinion on major issue domains over time. Say, top, the topic of immigration. Was there any evidence of a fundamental change in views on this topic in the run-up to the 2016 election or after? And the answer is not really. It seems to me the Republican Party opinion on free trade changed due to him. Is that just elite change? I think there's some something to be said for that, or, or just the, the general suspicion of China. There was always a kind of unformed view about China, and there was certainly suspicion before, but, but the idea that China would be characterized as the bad guy, a kind of malignant force in world affairs, that, that's, a, that's, I think, something that Trump could be credited for. I guess my evidence 
unscientific is just how much people seem to repeat what he says and seem to incorporate it into the way they talk about politics. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of truth to that, in part because the media coverage, I mean, the media have have changed you know, dramatically in their kind of economic structure over time. They've become much more centralized and the ordinary beat reporter is, is, you know, essentially not on, not, not, you know, released on his or her own recognizance with money to go off and investigate things. As a result, there's far more reporting on things that can be reported from one's home office. And that gives an outside role to what was formerly called Twitter, things like that. It's not surprising that journalistic coverage tends to accentuate the the themes, the current themes of of social media and other kinds of outposts where elites clearly know that they have to fall into line. What was your path to Yale from Berkeley? Was there anything in between? Did you just land there easily? It's sometimes a trying thing to go on the market. What was it in your case? I have a very uh, charmed life, so I, I I didn't suffer. I never really thought about going on the market, or it, it just um, the professional aspects of the profession just weren't on my mind very much. It was due to the fact that my mentor and mentors were just outstanding in in keeping me focused on the things that really matter, which are are scholarly. And their view was, look, you're productive, and you'll you'll make a splash when you get on the market. So just get on the market, and so I applied to four places and I got interviews at all four. The first place uh, was Yale's, I think it was November 30th, 1987. There was an emergency landing. We were flying out there. I was supposed to meet people um, when I arrived, but but there was an emergency landing in Denver for some mechanical problem. And I didn't arrive till 2.30 in the morning. When I did arrive, it was housed at Calhoun College, which is one of the residential colleges, as you know. Now renamed, yep. Now renowned, renamed, that's right. <laughs> I forgot that. It's, it's no longer um, named after John C. Callahan. Anyway, so there he was. I arrived in the middle of the night. And who should arrive to pick me up for breakfast at 8.30 or 8 o'clock in the morning? It's uh, none other than Ian Shapiro, who would one day be the co-author of my first book. Ian's a very early riser anyway, but it was kind of funny that there, that's how the day started off. But my talk was good and was well-received and... You know, by 4.30, I had a job offer. They knew I was going to Harvard the next day and they wanted to preempt them. And so that was, it was nice. So I didn't, didn't suffer. Probably how it should work. That's pretty happy. It was nice in the sense that, you know, I, I just remember how engaged and engaging the audience included a lot of people, you know, who were kind of legendary and the people I was meeting for the first time, you know, Mayhew was one, but Bob Dahl was another and you know, lots of people in that, that audience that day at Brewster Hall, which I think also no longer exists. And the questions that they asked, are, you know, are still things that I think about. So it was, it was a great day. Academic departments have mixed reputations as places to kind of live. How was that department for you? Well, it was, it was strange, right? The, the department was in an odd state because the great figures of Yale political science were either recently retired or had left in the case of Jerry Kramer. They did not have anybody teaching what we would think of as research methods. They had Ed Tufty, but Tufty was doing other things. He wasn't that interested in doing it anymore. And they had not taught even the second semester graduate class in four years when I arrived. And I remember Ian telling me, Don, you could take this as a problem or you could take this as an opportunity. So it's up to you. And I, being the only person there, even as a young pup, allowed me to really reconfigure the whole, the whole setup. How did you come upon or start doing experimental work in political science? This is a story that involves none other than Alan S. Gerber. So he comes to the department about 10 years later, and he takes up an office. I became director of the Institution for Social and Policy Studies in 1996, I believe. I set up Alan in, in the adjacent office to mine. So we're in 77 Prospect, and we're in adjacent offices. And one day we get in an argument. Arguing with Alan is always a, an amazing experience because he's extraordinarily smart and gifted. I remember the argument starts in, in the hallway outside our two offices, and it proceeds for about 
two hours, maybe more. And we're, we're both walking out of the building, but we're walking out like barely one step at a time. What are we arguing about? Well, you know, I had written this book, Pathologies of Rational Choice Theory, which basically made the argument that economic models of politics had not generated a harvest of empirically sustainable, non-obvious propositions. And Alan says, that's all well and good, but what are the empirically sustainable, non-obvious propositions from non-rational choice scholarship? And I hadn't really come to grips with this. And so the reason the argument was so long was that I would propose a contribution and he would say, you're failing to attend to the obvious infirmities of the research methods associated with that demonstration. And he was an MIT econ PhD um, who had trained under, in some sense, the next batch of Nobel laureates who were part of the so-called credibility revolution. And in some ways, that was the moment when, <laughs> when the credibility revolution came to my doorstep, because up to that point, I had sort of always assumed that uh, things were just rolling down the tracks and that the kind of research methods that I'd learned at Berkeley, which were survey oriented, were doing just fine. But Alan disabused me of that notion in those two hours as we went through paper after paper after paper. He basically left it in rubble. And the, the idea then was hatched, well, what are the bedrock empirical propositions on which political science, political behavior the, as the in particular, rests. What do we really know? Not descriptively, but causally. And so we decided at that point that you know maybe we should return to this long forgotten research literature by Sam Eldersveld and others. Eldersveld was a friend of Dwayne Marvick, who hired me as an RA when I was a senior at, at UCLA. And I met Sam Eldersveld, and that's how I, I came to know about Eldersveld's experiments during the 1950s. Almost nobody knew about them. I think they've only been cited several dozen times in the entire time um, they've been out there. But it, that was where the idea was hatched. And so Alan and I, you know, basically developed a research proposal to a local Connecticut foundation, which gave us 50,000 bucks to do what became the New Haven experiment. So tell me about that experiment. So this experiment was you know, the product of of two guys who, you know, we we certainly had thought a lot about research methods, but neither one of us had ever conducted a field experiment. So the idea was to kind of shoot from the hip. And we were interested in the topic of to what extent does door-to-door -door canvassing, direct mail, phone calls from telemarketing firms increase voter turnout. And so we did a study in 29 of the 30 wards in New Haven, not including the ward in which Yale sits. So we were going to uh, talk to the real people of New Haven and not the students. We hired an army of canvassers. Alan knew people who were in the direct mail biz and also in the phone call biz. And so we hired them to deploy the kinds of things that they would ordinarily deploy. This was all strictly nonpartisan messaging. This was done in collaboration, mostly nominal collaboration with the League of Women Voters. And so it was, you know, essentially a rather straightforward application of, you know, basic experimental methods, except that neither one of us had any experience doing it. And so we fumbled around trying to make it work. But the most memorable parts really were the were the canvassing parts, because it's dangerous to canvass in parts of New Haven. Some parts of New Haven had very high risk of crime. So we had people who went on later to become professors canvassing in triples or do nobody was supposed to be out of sight of anybody else. And in the early days of cell phone technology, this was a kind of new safety innovation. And so we boasted about the fact that we were able to you know, make it without any serious incidents. In fact, in some cases where we were canvassing in public housing projects, the residents were so pleased and impressed that someone would take notice of it, that they uh, escorted the um, canvassers from place to place to make sure that they were well treated. And it seemed like the main finding that came into my world, into the political practitioner world, was that canvassing, that door-to-door, -door was much superior to, to those other two methods. That's right. That was the key finding. And what was interesting about it is we did not, did not really expect anybody to much care about this. But once that 
message came out and it came out of the data. It wasn't as though we, we confected it in a way to, to appeal to anybody, but we became the little darling of local party organizations all over the place whose budgets had atrophied to the point where they were essentially no longer in operation. Everything had been centralized basically into the central party coffers. And so they used this as an opportunity to say, part of the problem is that we're not doing enough to fund local on the ground campaign work. And it is true that roughly from that point on, the interest in door-to-door canvassing surged dramatically. It, it was bolstered by not just our experiment, but by the next 50 experiments too. Did you see much difference between how the two major political parties took note of these findings and started to employ them or work with you or others? There were similarities and differences. Both parties were interested in conducting experiments, and we were a nonpartisan shop, and we were we did experiments with both parties, much to the chagrin of each party. But we were sort of on the science team, and it was kind of a heady moment because they did not, at that point, have their own research shops. And so we were not only doing these experiments, but we were also training the people who would ultimately uh, push us out the door. Um, that's okay. The moment really where this came to a head was when Karl Rove launched, I guess what it was called, I think it was called the 72-hour campaign. I can't remember how many hours were in his campaign, but but basically the idea was to allocate quite a lot of money to door-to-door operations in the waning moments of what I think was the 2002 election, as I recall. And that may be part legend and part real, but sold what later became the Bush-Cheney campaign in 2004 on the importance of door-to-door canvassing. There was certainly enthusiasm from the Kerry campaign, but the Kerry campaign basically did not do this as part of its own campaign organization. It farmed it out to, I think it was called ACT, but I forget what that stands for, to do this in a kind of- America coming together, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So at any rate, the thing that really is, is interesting is that Although the 2000 election was incredibly close, as we remember, turnout was not particularly high. And I think it was 107 million, and it surged to like 122 million by by 2004. Now, it might be that it would have surged anyway, but what's kind of interesting is that that was also, it also coincided with, you know, a fundamental change in strategy. Why a change in strategy? Well, I think one of the things that appealed to both parties and has appealed to them since, was that if you ran a mobilization campaign, you could basically appeal not to the centrists, but to the party activists and the donors. And so this set in motion a kind of, you know, out of control, self-reinforcing system of fundraising, activism, and extremism that caused the parties to to, uh, diverge. Explain that. The idea was formerly that you would reach out to the independents or the people who are persuadable in the middle. And I remember hearing in 2004, both parties make announcements that we've come to the conclusion based on polling that there aren't enough people in the middle. So instead of going to the middle, we're going to go to our base and we're going to mobilize them and get them excited about what we stand for and how different what we stand for is from the other sides. So that of course, unleashed, you know, for example, on the right, Christian conservatives and homeschoolers and gun rights advocates and to mobilize an, an unprecedented scale. That was much to their liking because, of course, they were kind of central now to the, the nature of the appeal. The fact that it seemed to work well in places that, like Ohio, set in motion a kind of reinforcement uh, uh, system. So do you feel any guilt about the move? the polarizing of the country that came from uh, inadvertently from this experimental finding? Yeah, I think it it certainly is an interesting sequence of events. The thing that makes it complicated is that there were other things that happened uh, that were a little bit off the expected path. For example, the McCain campaign was not particularly good at mobilizing its base. Now, maybe that has to do with the fact that McCain himself was a bit of a centrist. And although Palin, you know, was, was, there to placate the the base. Um, It was a kind of odd campaign and the circumstances were odd. And then in 12, 
the Republicans never really found their footing in terms of Romney's support because he, again, was not a, a, an activist base kind of guy. The Obama era, 8 and 12, was a kind of wonderful example of what you could get if you had a candidate who could appeal to the base. In 16, you have a very odd circumstance because in the case of Trump, although he very much appeals to the base, he's such an amateur that he doesn't really have much of an organization. And so his get out the vote campaign is basically, you know, go vote, you guys. Um, doesn't really or, have or, a or Facebook database targeting. Right. It's, a, it's very odd. And because of the, the COVID epidemic in 2020, we didn't really have a kind of retail politics campaign, although we had record turnout for other reasons. So in some ways, I guess the question of guilt <laughs> is on 2024, because we'll see which, which if maybe both parties decide that this is their way to put it over the top. I'm aware of, and probably a lot of my listeners are aware of the founding of the Analyst Institute and the work that is housed there or sh shared there. Is there something like that on the Republican side? Do they take that up in a similar way with an institute or where is that found? Yeah, they they did for a while, but I don't know that it's still operative, in part because the group of people who were doing it were they were not in good favor with the Trump folks. And so in 2016, they were not doing any of the campaign work for Trump or Trump allies. And they ended up going into kind of corporate work. I get the sense that, that their infrastructure is kind of atrophied because I no longer am, you know, sent missives about their latest event. They used to have regular events, but, but I think that has decayed in part because I think the leadership on the Trump side is not particularly, particularly enamored of this style of campaign craft. How did the use of experimental methods work its way forward within political science after you published that New Haven experiment and, and, and your book, Get Out the Vote with Gerber? What was the trajectory there? For a while, it was like a Potemkin village where people like David Nickerson and, and we and, and our postdocs were sort of creating lots of publications, but they were all more or less from the same shop. And then what began to happen is that people were moving outside of Yale either because they were at Yale, but they took jobs elsewhere. People like Dan Butler, Susan Hyde, Thad Dunning, they basically take the religion on the road. And as they do, these studies start to have the imprimatur of other universities. So in some ways, it gradually grew. By the time we get to roughly 2010, new organizations are starting to be formed. So for example, the experimental research section of the American Political Science Association, the group called Experiments in Governance and Politics. These are independently funded and operative organizations that aren't just, you know, Don and Allen. The nice thing about that is from that point on, you could see that there were courses training people and there were clashes of, of scholars who were doing this work, not just in the United States, but elsewhere. And they were doing it with no connection to us. Alan and I would sometimes look at the meeting schedule of major conferences and say, you know, there are field experiments done by people we don't know. And that's a good thing. So it was, it was kind of off the tarmac and into the air roughly in the 2010s. And I, I think our contribution was the textbook that we wrote, the field experiments textbook. It made it a teachable method. And so it was the kind of thing that people can learn about, not from us. Since, since the roots of this were in that conversation that you had with Gerber about rational choice and how well that was working, when you look sort of as a critic of the experimental method, what do you think are the strengths and weaknesses of, of what you can find out about politics that way and what you can't? Yeah, it's a great question. It's one that I think about all the time. Part of the issue here is We've seen a dramatic growth, and I think that JPAL, uh, the Jamil Poverty Action Lab, is it gets a lot of credit for this in the ambitiousness of field experiments. You know, it used to be a relatively small scale operation. You'd have something in the field; it was done with a not particularly ambitious intervention or a not particularly ambitious time frame. And I think that a few Nobel prizes later you actually have some very, very ambitious and substantial field experiments. Moreover, 
you have things that are not strictly field experiments, but are that are, are inspired by the newfound credibility of randomized trials. So Angrist, a recent Nobel Prize winner, right, his claim to fame was to reanalyze the Vietnam draft lottery. Now, the Vietnam draft lottery obviously dates back to 1969, but very rarely was it the subject of serious uh, scholarship until his 1990 paper. And basically what happened was people start to get interested in this as a research opportunity. One of the things that has happened over time is that not only did it transform the kinds of interventions that were deployed, but it also transformed the way in which scholars would subsequently look for research opportunities, even when experimentation was not fully operative or was was operative, but un, unnoticed, as in the case of school voucher experiments or random assignment of judges to cases. These are all lotteries that are happening every day. So, so I would say that's one thing. The other thing is that, of course, the, the entity that can do experiments on the grandest scale is government. And to the extent that governments get involved and do things like uh, the Progressa conditional cash transfer program in Mexico, they can set in motion a kind of worldwide wave of, of policy interventions. And so I think that the for that reason, the jury is out in terms of what we can and cannot study. It really depends on who happens to be in a position of authority and discretion. And that's why I approach the study and the, the teaching of, of research methods with a certain missionary zeal. I want to train Yale or Columbia undergraduates to go on to run administrative agencies and say, you know, we really should randomize. One of the things I've thought a little bit about is like if you're running a campaign or advising a campaign, it seems like there's a lot of these evidence-based findings that apply on a tactical level to allocation of resources. But a lot of campaigning is about positioning and message and sort of just things the candidate alone or the party really have to take responsibility for that are much more strategic questions that are maybe less accessible to experimental change. Oh, like, no, 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 I don't think they're less accessible. I just think they require a level of commitment and imagination that has proven elusive. So Trump, who we talked about earlier, when he's launching his campaign in 2015, he makes a number of strategic decisions, I'm assuming, putting effort into making immigration a central issue, free trade, finding room there where the population was probably not aligned with either party. You know, you could test them, but I, I don't have a sense that that's the way creative politicians think about stepping out and doing something different that's significant and large and gets them heard differently, right? How they present their personality, all kinds of things like that. How, how do you think of that? From the from the lens of uh, you know an analyst of these these sort of things using experiments, I, I certainly think they are amenable to experimentation. And before we go to the Trump case, because that's a bit sui generis, let's kind of step back and say, well, what if we weren't doing such fine grained tactical experiments, and we were thinking a bit more about the strategic big picture? One thing, for example, would be how much and and in what way should you incentivize local party organizations or local unaffiliated organizations? Do they make a difference? And rather than telling them, go Canvas as opposed to writing handwritten postcards, you could say, we're going to create this kind of block grant program, and we're going to see whether it generates votes. And that just has not been done. It's kind of crazy. Like the industrial organization of campaign craft experiments have not been done, although they could be done. With respect to messaging or positioning, those kinds of experiments could be done and in some ways have been done. But of course, the thing that is a little bit tricky is to model the strategic response of opponents. You know, For example, when Trump made his snarky criticism of McCain, I forget what he said exactly, but something to the effect that- I, I like my heroes who aren't captured. Right. I thought 
that would be curtains because you would think that every veteran organization would say, what's up with that? You know, you're, you're saying that, you know, people who are missing in action are, are not heroes, but that was not how it played out in part because the way in which the chattering classes kind of converged on that question was kind of out of step with what people were saying kind of locally to one another. That's the part that's tricky to, to experiment with. It's not inherently impossible, but I think that it requires some higher level testing to see how, you know, trial balloons stay aflight or or drop to the ground in different regions. And that's a a much more ambitious study than pretty much any party is willing to to risk. I've noticed that your get out the vote book seems to be reissued every about four years. It, It literally was just published last week. What is changing about it? from edition to edition, what's new is being learned? That's that's a great question. So the first edition is 2004. I guess this one has a pub date of 2024, although it really came out a few weeks ago. In 2004, that that book summarized a small number of experiments. It was probably in the neighborhood of a dozen. And so it was relatively easy to tell the story of specific experiments and have people kind of um, reason to the bigger conclusion. By the time we get to 2024, there are hundreds of experiments on get out the vote type things. They're on topics that just were not topics in, in 2004. And conversely, topics that were lively in 2004, like phone banking, are rather different now. And they've kind of been eclipsed by other technologies. So, so essentially what has happened over time is that certain chapters have gone on diets and others have gotten fatter. It's reflecting in some ways the advent of new technologies and new research um, on those technologies. So for example, there was nothing on text messaging in the old days and that became a thing. And we increasingly wrote about it. So email, for example, has receded and text messaging has increased as technology has changed. Another thing that's changed is that we've tried to make it so the reader is reminded of the overarching themes that connect different chapters. So there's a chapter on direct mail, a chapter on canvassing, a chapter on mass media, and this and that. But we've tried to focus less on on specific experiments and tried to uh, focus more on the connective tissue in, in terms of what works. So now there is, for example, a chapter on messaging that talks about social pressure and other forms of messaging and in some ways debunks some of the other arguments about messaging that are often made, like the idea of urging people to not to vote, but to be a voter, we think that that's, that's probably not a compelling distinction. What we're trying to do is give a reader who really only cares about two or three things the chapters that, that they can read in detail. Do you think that the findings of these experiments are durable in the sense that they, they will continue to hold up as politics changes, as the technologies of voter contact change? It seems like to some extent, they take place at a particular time in a particular way? It's a great question. And I think that in some cases, the answer is clearly no. So, for example, in the case of text messaging, when it was a novel thing, it had gigantic effects. And then several hundred millions of texts later, it's been kind of run into the ground. The initial findings were something in the neighborhood of two or three percentage points. My latest meta-analysis puts it at something like 0.2 percentage points. So I think that people can become inured to an overused tactic. On the other hand, I think that there are some things that do stand the test of time and they have to do with the quality of interpersonal contact. So to the extent that a person is, say, a low propensity voter, they don't really feel like a voter. They're not very interested. They don't really see any point. Politics is a dirty business. The people around them aren't talking about the importance of voting, talking to them in a kind of heartfelt one-on-one way does have an effect. And I think that that's why perhaps the more interesting developments that go into the recent editions have to do with so-called relational organizing. Yeah. I've, I've talked to a bunch of practitioners of that at different levels from the technology to just uh, people who innovated it and so on. And it seems like, I mean, there's a, there's a logic to it that it's understandable. If you were going to point to a couple things that people who are running campaigns should take out of what you and, and other people working on this have found, 
for 2024, what do you think are the most important findings? Let's back up. In some ways, it depends on whether we're talking about, say, a party or a labor union or an interest group that has an enduring interest in politics going forward, as opposed to a group uh, that's going to be focused on a particular candidate and their interests are, are evanescent now or never. So if, if we're talking about the, the now or never folks, I think what I would say to them is something like, you know, remember that the things that are really expensive come with an opportunity cost, that you can blow a lot of money very quickly, and it's not totally obvious uh, that those things work. So for example, television. I don't doubt that some television is, is useful. And I'm not one of these people who says, oh, you know, half the money on television is wasted, but you don't know which half because how do we know it's half? It's just that I think that to have credibility in the eyes of journalists and political commentators, you have to have some presence in mass media. That said, it's incredibly expensive. And the opportunity cost is in, in terms of people power. The problem is we've kind of come into politics at a moment in history where it's so capital intensive as opposed to labor intensive that we sort of expect to be able to buy the on the ground support through canvassers or what's sometimes called derisively astroturf. And that's not so easy to do, at least not in the short run. So to the extent that I would, I would say you or your allies are running for office, what is it that you are running on that would appeal to voters? Find the interest groups that are interested in those issues and put them to work as your allies on the ground, as your spokespeople. And funding that sort of thing is almost certainly going to be a better investment per dollar. Now, for the parties or the labor unions or the enduring institutions, there the, the thing is that if they're playing the long game, there's no evidence that a kind of mass media-oriented campaign is going to have any long-term impact. And so the tricky thing for them is, how do you amortize what you're doing over time? And I would say that that tilts in favor even more of ground-oriented strategies. What led to you leaving Yale and going to Columbia? Well, when my then high school, I guess early college-aged kids who are now in their 30s announced to my wife that they didn't really want to come back to New Haven because their friends wanted to be in New York City. This put us on rocket power to, to go to New York City. And so I was I actually, just incidentally, I was taking a sabbatical at NYU downtown that year. And we just had so much fun in the city. And so I called up some some colleagues at NYU in Columbia, the NYU people wanted nothing to do with me. And the Columbia said, folks, I think that'd be great. So here I am in Columbia. The quality of life is, is great. I mean, we lived in New Haven happily for 22 years. It wasn't, you know, our kids were born there. It wasn't that we, we suffered there. It was time for, for change. I was turning 50 at the time and you know, I'd been working at Yale all of my adult life. And so it was time to, time to do something new. Do you find any difference in the students either between the institutions or just the the difference that time has made in how their political attitudes are currently versus before. That's interesting. I, I haven't seen much difference in terms of politics of the students, but maybe that's because I'm in a very uh, niche area. The Yale undergraduates are probably the best undergraduates anywhere. So it's not surprising that they would uh, be better than their Columbia counterparts. But Columbia is kind of a funny system because it's three colleges in one. The Columbia College students are outstanding. Uh, the Barnard College students who are just a cut below, still good. And the general studies students who are basically a wild card from the deck. And they're all over the place. So it, the Yale students were much easier to teach because they were much more homogeneity in terms of their ability. Alan was a Yale undergraduate, and we'd often joke that we love to see a Yale undergraduate who tells us that they have absolutely no talent. They don't play an instrument. They are not athletic. They have no apparent gifts at all. And you think, oh, so there's only one reason you're here. <laughs> Which is what? Brain power. <laughs> and so when you think of David Brockman, you think, David Brockman, that's the guy we want. You know, we want a guy who, even as a freshman, could generate publishable research. You know, my daughter, I won't keep this in the in the podcast, but my daughter is a junior at Yale, and okay, she often is probably too wowed by her classmates and what they can do, yeah. and she may be in that category. Of, 
<laughs> very talented, but maybe not clear about what her, her thing is yet. But Yes. Well, maybe that's a good, good thing. Uh, a couple of years ago, I was talking to Professor Tulis at University of Texas, and he talked about changing a bit the way he taught in the time of Trump because of some responsibility to the Republic that he didn't feel in previous administrations. Just, And I think that's with January 6th and the way Trump has been campaigning lately, that would weigh on me if I were a professor. Does that change the way you conduct yourself in the classroom or in your consulting work, if that's continuing? I certainly as am as uh, interested, engaged, concerned as, as anybody, uh, maybe more so, but I'm very uh, strict about keeping it out of the classroom. I try not to let it uh, affect my pedagogy in any way. I often will make it a research question, you know, what does the research literature say about this or that having to do with, say, persuasion or mobilization or opinion change, democratic values, anything. I'm very interested in it, but I, I really do everything I can to play my cards close to the vest, ideologically. And you have consulted to both sides on the experimental. Is that still something you're comfortable doing and, uh, or has that changed at all? No, I, I'm, I'm, I certainly have my views. But when it comes to this kind of activity, I'm on the science team. And I think that the, they, they know that. I don't laugh at their jokes. And I don't, I don't opine. I don't you know, make snarky comments. Uh, sometimes they will come into my office in succession and they'll literally sit in the same seat. And I'll, I'll think you know, if they only knew, they would want to change chairs. But the point is that I'm interested in cause and effect. I realize that in the kind of wake of Cambridge Analytica, that sounds, you know, really nefarious, but I think that it's still pretty benign in the sense that uh, we're at we're at such an early stage in this scientific enterprise that nobody really has a clear sense of of the next thing that'll work and how well. And and even if we did, they wouldn't necessarily want to follow the the research literature to do something. They want to know whether this worked. And usually that's in the fullness of time, not in the context of a specific campaign. Do you think that colleagues who are bringing partisanship into the classroom are making a mistake? Not necessarily a mistake. It's just maybe a different set of tastes. I want students to recognize that there can be answers to cause and effect questions that are in some sense independent of substance. That yes, you have to consider violations of core assumptions in a way that is technically correct and mechanical and require deep knowledge of the subject matter, but you can analyze things in ways that don't even require you to know what the study is about. Don, what should I have asked you that I have failed to? Here's one topic, and it goes. I, I was thinking about it when we were talking about the initial conversation with Alan back in 1998. Alan saw way before I did the importance of something that is sometimes known in the trade as benchmarking. So benchmarking is coming up with an answer to a, a research question using the most rigorous method. So you think, okay, it may not be a very interesting question. In fact, it may be a very boring question, but you're going to get an exact answer. And so you do a large randomized trial on something like do telephone calls increase voter turnout? And it, maybe it's not that much of an a topic for you. You don't really care. But the thing that Alan saw before I saw it, and this has really changed my whole intellectual trajectory, is that having the answer to a defined question allows you to evaluate the extent to which other research methodologies would provide a reliable answer to that or other questions of that sort. So if you know the exact answer to the question, to what extent do phone calls, increase voter turnout, you can then ask, well, how would survey research do with an observational design? And how would participant observation research do it? How would focus groups do? And that completely transformed the way I think about social science. Because oddly, I grew up in a, in a time where the thing that was prized in social science was the most memorable or theoretically engaging answer not necessarily the right answer. You didn't, didn't even care so much about getting the right answer. It was more, you know, having an answer that would, in the words of the exponents of this view, really make you think. Right? And, and I think there's a certain style that really rewards scholars who say extreme things. 
And I think that what's kind of interesting is to ask, okay, what if we got back to basics and we said, you know, how well does our sciencey version of political science do to recover things that are knowable? And what does that tell us about things that are really hard to know? I meant to ask you earlier, what is your current thinking about rational choice and its usefulness in the discipline? Well, I would say that rational choice in 2023 is very different from what it was in 1994 when we wrote the book. Actually, we wrote the book even before that. At that early, early era of the 1990s, the thing that had been unleashed was this idea that we had to remake political science entirely by giving it a kind of formal structure. The book, I think, was was distinctive in the sense that it, unlike other critics of rational choice, it did not criticize the scientific aspirations of rational choice theory, right? So it wasn't a postmodern critique of rational choice. It was saying, well, how well are they doing at their science? And the, the difficulty is that they just weren't doing empirics in a very compelling way. And very often, they were adducing confirming illustrations of their preferred theoretical conclusions. And so the, the book was really about that. I would say rational choice modeling and empirics have greatly improved in part because they've become much less ambitious theoretically. So instead of remaking everything in their preferred theoretical terminology, now they're done by people who are very narrow in their focus and somewhat sober in their empirical tactics. That's something that you know I would say is a, is a positive development. What I still see is that very often the the limitations of formal modeling itself are basically a constraint on what can be learned. So you end up with a model and I end up with a different model and a third professor ends up with yet another model. And it's not quite obvious how we would adjudicate among these models, given that they often have overlapping or similar empirical predictions. In many ways, they were created to account for a known empirical regularity. So in that sense, it's still a bit of a head scratcher as to how you make scientific advances using this method. So what's next for you? You've kind of mentioned your intellectual direction here and there. Where are you taking your study? I guess what I've become interested in uh, very much and, and active in uh, the last few years, it's been, I guess, what might have formerly been called the, the field of comparative political behavior. So I'm interested in the study of social attitude change in the wake of what might be called education entertainment or entertainment education. I can never remember which comes first, but basically the idea is you're going to provide a narrative, a story, a dramatization by video or radio soap operas. You're going to deploy it as we have in places like Uganda or Tanzania or lately Indonesia, Egypt, and you're going to examine the extent to which people who would not otherwise encounter this kind of message, uh, change their views based on the, the themes of the show. That's a rather different agenda for me. And it's brought me to these places. I, I still have yet to go to Indonesia. I was, I was hoping to go there, but COVID said otherwise. I hope to get another chance. But basically, the idea is, under what circumstances can attitudes change and for how long? Very often, when you're talking about early enforced marriage or female genital cutting or other kinds of topics. You're talking about topics that are that are deeply ingrained in a kind of conservative gender hierarchy-based culture. And the question is, to what extent would a narrative change their views about these topics? And to what extent would it change their views about, say, gender equality more generally? And across a wide array of topics from teacher absenteeism, environmental conservation, on and on and on, you know, what we find is again and again that the media messages have an impact and an enduring impact on specific attitudes, but almost never on the more general orientations. That's why I want to become increasingly ambitious about what kinds of media portrayals are, are presented and be more, much more experimental and scientific about the development of the messages. So, so then what's the mechanism for long-term change? Is that just people dying out that have more conservative attitudes, let's say in this case, and being replaced by people who grew up in a different environment? It could be that or – but at the same time, we have instances where, where changes do occur. So I don't think it's just due to the Grim Reaper. I guess to the extent that there is change, you would think that maybe there's a more intensive form of communication that might produce change. And their elite communication, say by religious leaders or others, um, might be important. And so that, that's something we're 
we're currently exploring, which is sort of the effects of elite opinion leadership. Yeah, I've, I've heard people who advocate for deep canvassing, for example, on gay rights or marriage equality, that that was the only mechanism that was creating change in attitude. I don't know if that's true, but I've certainly heard a number of people say that. I think it's an open question. I, I mean, the, the recent experiments seem to suggest that there's something to that. And I think that the question is, what does it take to do that at scale? Yeah. Well, it, Don, it's a, a real honor to talk to you today. You're the type of person I'd like to get a week with rather than a day or an hour, but I, I, I appreciate this. And I will look forward to hearing what people think about it after I post it. So. Great. Well, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure and an honor to be invited. I do hope that we'll get to make some uh, sawdust in, in coming weeks or months. <laughs> I hope you do, for sure. That was Don Green. He is at donaldgreen.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere, and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.